0: Okay, if you would, please turn to the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6. I'll be reading Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint to this we whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. And they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. And so, Father, what we have before us is holy. It is your word. So I beg for your help to teach, to unfold, to say and to re-say what is written. And I beg for every one of us in here to have ears to hear, to have hearts that will be struck through with the glory of the Holy Spirit implanting planting the word within our hearts to the exaltation in the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. This passage here, it could bring up many, many different topics from many different angles. But so that we don't miss the forest for the trees, the point, I contend, of this passage that Luke gives us, and he has a point, is that the prayerful Ministry of the Word is central to the life of the church and to evangelism. What I mean is this, verse 1 starts the section with these words. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, and it ends with this in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Then, sandwiched in between those two verses is how a problem arose within the church that needed to be dealt with. But, if it was not dealt with in the right way, that problem and its solution would have been an attack upon the Word of God in the community. But we see here that in the early church, they avoided that incoming missile, and the result was the Word of God continued to increase. This is the core message of this passage. And there are other lessons in it that are connected to that. And one of those lessons is this. We are very limited and broken human beings. We all know that little saying, if you ever find the perfect church, please don't join it. Because then you will wreck it and it will become imperfect. You see, if your goal in life is to never feel pain in relationships, then never Make friends, never date, never marry, never have kids, and never, ever, ever live the Christian life, which is a community life with other finite undone members of Jesus's body as a christian living in real organic church life i promise you you will be disappointed and you will be disappointing others welcome to real god-ordained christianity But in the midst of that reality that God has ordained from the foundation of the world, our only long-lasting hope is to keep the ministry of the Word of God alive and central. So, here's Luke. He tells us now... I don't know, we're eight months in, we're a year in, we just don't know. But he lets us know that this messy problem arose within the church. Now, the population of Jerusalem is somewhere between 600,000 and 800,000 persons at this time. And, and Luke lets us know that there's at least 7,000 members of the church in Jerusalem at this time and the bigger the organism, the harder the organization. And we've already learned from Luke of the extraordinary giving of these early Christians of their money, their stuff, and selling property so that every believer in Jerusalem from the very poor will make sure that they have their needs met. And widows are of a particular importance, particularly at this time with their economy and the way the world worked. Many widows, not only is their husband and breadwinner gone, but they don't have any working family members to support them and there were no government social security checks coming in every month or a pension or any individual retirement accounts that they're living for the rest of their life off of a percentage of that nothing like that their breadwinner husband is gone and they're in real need for food and clothing and shelter if they don't have family members and many people didn't later on in the Gentile church churches, Paul will instruct Timothy on what to do with the widow ministry. And he's very clear not all widows should be registered in the church and supported by the church, these are the ones you should do who have the real need. This is always a problem that the church should be solving and helping. And it certainly was a chronic problem in the first century. And so, there are all kinds of others. Other people had needs, but this was one of those main practical ministries in the church. So there was some kind of an organization already there where the daily needs, the food, the clothing, the spending money, or whatever was being dished out from the pot and at this point, Luke lets us know bickering began. People, Christians, are feeling unloved. They're feeling neglected. That's verse one. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint. It's, this is the word that translates, you know, that Old Testament in the wilderness word, murmuring. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, in other words, what Luke is saying, these Greek-speaking Jews from the Diaspora, from the other parts of the world, were not raised up in Judea or Jerusalem, who their first language is Greek, and they have been enculturated with Hellenism, Greek, Greek culture. And now they are in Jerusalem. They have come to the Lord. They're beginning to murmur against other Christian Jews who are called here Hebrews, which, which means those, they're raised in Palestine, Israel, Judea, or Galilee, and their first language that they speak as Jews in the Jewish homeland is Aramaic. Now, they're also conversant, like many around the world are with English today, in Greek. But this was a, a, a cultural an ethnic distinction of language and culture between these two. So first the Hellenist, they were born and raised outside of the Jewish homeland. There's some distinctions how they did life even as Jews and the language. The Hebrews, well that's people like Jesus. And Peter and John and Nicodemus, they were raised in Palestine, in Judea, or Galilee, in the Jewish culture, speaking Aramaic. So, Jews from both groups have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And what we learn here is that getting saved did not automatically erase cultural or ethnic background differences. And that can be a recipe for tension or an opportunity for growth. Tensions arose, murmuring is filtering through the church, through the ranks. Voices are being heard. Why don't our leaders fix it? Thomas, Andrew, Peter, Bartholomew, John. Guys, take this ministry over. Get this favoritism thing fixed. If you guys did it, your leaders every day made sure things were done right, then the problem would be taken care of. That seems to be the context, something like that. We'll come back to that in a second. So, if you haven't gotten this yet, here's real life, here's the news flash. Different cultures coming together cause tension. Why? Because they're different. Period. If you're not married yet, see, you can talk about larger cultures, subcultures, etc. You know, families have cultures. And if you don't know this, you can be raised in the same city and two families come together in marriage and their culture of doing dinner is different. Doing vacation, doing holidays, and tension will arise. Right, Serge? You got it. All right. Put an Argentinian with a Cuban family, and oh my God. So in Jerusalem at this time, before the Jesus event, there, there, there are hundreds of synagogues. It's a big city. And many of those synagogues are different based upon culture. Particularly, the, we'll see this in, the, in chapter 6 as it comes along. This Hellenistic culture versus those who, this is their homeland, Aramaic speaking versus Greek speaking and At this point in Acts chapter 6, maybe what has already happened, because they have large meetings with thousands in Solomon's portico, true, but they have house churches all over. This has been clear with Luke, and there's probably already, just because differences, and I can relate to that more, that there's these distinctions between Hellenist groups and Hebrew groups or Aramaic-speaking groups within the church. And so what's probably happening is that the minority group, the Hellenists, are feeling that they're getting the short end of the stick. Our widows seem to be taken care of, last of all, and sometimes not at all. And that's a huge problem in the early church because if that continues that is directly against the teaching of Jesus and it would be a blight on the glory of Christ in the church so it's not a small insignificant problem it's a threat to the community itself and so they need to fix it. That's what Luke lets us know. But sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. If the patient has a cancerous growth in his stomach, and you try to kill the cancer by chopping the patient in half, you killed the cancer. It's not going to grow anymore. But you've also killed the patient, the church. And the apostles saw the danger of trying to cure this problem in the wrong way. And they make this clear in verse And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right. It would be a horrific mistake. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God in order to deal with this problem. To serve tables. They seem to be responding to suggestions that are flowing out of many members within the church. Sure would be a good idea. Few apostles. Our pastors, our shepherds spent more time hands on activity of distributing the food and the clothing and the money on a daily basis to make sure it's doing, it's being done right and fair, or or at least form your own board of directors and you oversee how the whole thing's going and take care of the problem. And the apostles, they saw this was a terrible threat to Christianity, to the life of the church, to the spread of the gospel. And so they clearly make that point in verse 2, and they reiterate it again in verse 4. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the result of their decision is verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. That's what happened. Luke is now telling the story. And Luke is deliberate in what he's doing and what he wants to communicate. And Luke's point is clear. It is that the Word of God kept increasing and spreading and bearing fruit because the apostles did not fall for the huge mistake of leaving their calling to study and to pray and to preach the Word for the sake of dealing with a very real, significant, urgent problem within the church. So Luke is clearly communicating that the biggest threat to the church above the problem of favoritism and neglect of the Hellenistic widows, above that problem, the biggest problem is the threat of the Word of God being diminished by those who are entrusted with it in their giftings, in their calling, and in their office. Because the apostles are like all of us, finite. They only have 24 hours in a day. They only have seven days in a week. And they know that. And so they protected their calling for the sake of the church. But they did not leave this problem unsolved. There was a simple solution. <laughs> we apostles are not Superman times 12. We don't have all the gifts, there's thousands of us. Find seven brothers who are more gifted than we are in administration. Others are much better equipped than we are to do this task or the other. The apostles had wisdom. And so we read in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, church, pick out, From among you seven men of good repute, reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. You, congregation, you in groups know each other. You've been doing life together. Find seven men who meet these qualifications to oversee the distribution to the widows. And so they did, and they chose seven Hellenistic Jews. We know that very clearly by their Greek names. The apostles delegated the task. To these seven brothers and the apostles themselves stuck to their task of ministering the Word of God to the people and Luke sees this as a win-win. The widows are properly cared for and the ministry of the word of God was not forsaken. And one of the keys to that was the realization of differing gifts and callings within the community of Christ. That's what we read here. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said... It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they needed men to run this thing well, to get it right, but not just any men but men he says who have a track record of being solid what's that mean okay you don't know a solid man from a uh, a solid man a, a, a men who as you watch they do life well they have in other words a reputation that follows them of good decision-making. That's why he says, full of wisdom. Wisdom on how to deal with life in difficult situations and men who conduct their lives with integrity. It's right there. Men who are full of the Spirit. In other words, as we see later in the New Testament very clearly, they walk by the Spirit. They are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, of kindness, wisdom, patience, self-control. They're lovers of Jesus. Find those men. There's a lot of them. Just pick seven of them. And then we will delegate this task. To them, now, I actually, what I'm going to say, I've never, I don't, I'm making sure, I, I don't think, I don't think I've ever been a part of a church like this. But over the years, like I'm going to say, I have heard story after story after story. Uh, Within churches where there are men and women who are there for years on this board or on that committee and they're control freaks and manipulate other persons and they have survived through 13 and a half pastors and probably one of the reasons. Those persons, according to this text, are exactly not what the apostles are calling for. Not power-hungry men, but spiritual men who seek God and his will for the church through prayer and the scriptures. This is what he's calling for. The apostles clearly were not control freaks who had to direct every ministry happening within the large church at Jerusalem. They knew their focused calling, and they stuck to it. And they knew God raises up many others who are much more gifted and have strength that they don't. So the seven are brought and they lay hands on them and pray. Verse 5 and 6. And what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procreus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The New Testament goes on, of course, to tell us, which are written, many of them before Luke even writes this, and Luke hangs out with Paul who gives us so much of this stuff that there are all kinds of giftings that God gives to persons operate within the local church he uses people in various ways so I'm going to quote one commentator who takes what we're reading here in this passage and applies it to our 21st century church quote we need to understand that often people grumble about problems that are directly related to their area of spiritual gift. If someone complains that the church does not do enough in outreach, you're probably looking at a person with the gift of evangelism. If she complains that the church is not friendly enough, chances are she has the gift of hospitality. The one who grumbles about how disorganized the church is probably is gifted in administration. The key to resolving differences is for each person to recognize the validity of all the gifted members and to use his or her gift to work on the problems that he or she perceives. Now, back to the main point. The apostles, very early on, are setting a precedent for the church throughout the world and throughout the centuries. And Luke, under the sovereignty of God, himself is deliberately making the point of the priority of the Word in the church. And those who are entrusted with the care of the sheep as teaching and preaching shepherds, they are not to let anything take away from the ministry of the Word verse 4 but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word now little personal for a moment That verse, right there, over these years has been a solid rock to keep me focused on my main duty as a preaching pastor, along with 2 Timothy 4, where Paul lays out what is central to the pastoral ministry. Actually starting at the end of chapter 3 in 2nd Timothy, Paul writes to Pastor Timothy. Timothy, watch where he starts, watch his foundation. All scripture. This book, the Bible. Is 66 books, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Clearly, at the moment, of course, Paul's meaning Old Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, rebuking, for correcting, for correction. For training in righteousness. This Scripture, Timothy, very profitable for these things. Why? So that you, Timothy, and all those like you, that is, so that the man of God, Paul is drawing an Old Testament saying that clearly means here, the messenger of God the one entrusted with god's word to teach it that's what he means here so that the man of god may be complete equipped don't do it with the scripture for every good work now he hasn't now he gets to his point to timothy So therefore, Timothy, I charge you. Preach, not something else. Preach the word. That's what he means. Even though you don't get the verb and the object of the verb until the beginning of verse 2, because Paul, he still wants to pause with Timothy to let him know how serious the issue is. I charge you in the presence of God. God's watching you, Timothy. I charge you in the presence of of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. Timothy, those people that you're preaching to will be judged. You, Timothy, will be judged. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead one day and by His second coming, His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and encourage or exhort with complete patience and teaching. we know what Paul goes on to say because, Timothy, I know this. Churches will still exist, and the Word of God will diminish because the people will say, I don't want to hear that truth. Tickle my ears. I'm bored with that and there will be many who will rise up and satisfy those persons. That's what he goes on to say. Preach the Word. And before Paul was even converted to Jesus, the apostles before him set the precedent, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, in other words, not merely teaching like being a Bible professor, and here you go, you got the information, good prayer and serving, ministering, serving. Up the word as a prayerful person before God. Prayer. So, what I want to do to close is I'm going to read something, and it's a one page large print paper that a friend of mine gave to me over a decade ago, and it's been hanging on my study wall ever since it's titled What Sayeth Thou Man of God from 2nd Timothy and in light of our passage this morning here in Acts 6 what I'm going to read I contend should be the cry of every church member in every church throughout this world toward their pastor or pastors here we go Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books and his pen and paper and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before text and the broken hearts of the flock. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Burn his eyes weary With study and make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone, burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets, put water in his gas tank, give him a Bible. And tie him to the pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, quiz him, examine him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play the psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it night and day. Sir, we would see Jesus when at long last he dares to ascend the pulpit. Ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning papers and digest the television commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary drives and bless the sordid baked potatoes and green beans ad infinitum better than he can. But command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten until he can stand up, worn and forlorn, and say, Thus saith the Lord. Give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it. Come at last to speak it backward and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. And so Luke's point, it reverberates Throughout our passage this morning. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And the Word of God continued to increase. And by God's grace, may that continue to be true here at Sovereign Grace. May it more and more be true through his 10,000s and 10,000s of churches throughout the world. There is only one central hope for humanity, to save the souls of church members and of those who preach it and of those who are outside the church. And it is serving up the truth of the Word of God and the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, your grace is good. And may for each and every one of us in here. daily yearn as hearers and teachers as teachers and hearers yearn to be broken and healed and broken and healed by your word to the glory of Jesus Amen